Well, please open your Bibles again to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Last week, we began a study on um, living in the light, being someone who is responsible to pursue holiness and being above reproach as children. This is what Paul instructs us to do. And we looked briefly at Ephesians 5.3 on fleeing sexual impurity. Well, as I told you, there's no way we could do everything we wanted to do in that one week, so we're going to extend it uh, one beyond that and title this an excursus on sexual purity. I've already been asked, what is an excursus? So our beloved youth pastor, Adam Buelltel, gave me a wonderful definition. It's a glorified rabbit trail. I think that's the best way to describe it. It just means a digression. We're going to pull the car over. That's what an excursus is. And uh, I'm glad to be able to do that on this passage. Let's get the whole passage in our mind, kind of have it in our ram as we think about this. Let me read verses 13 and following on this section of walking in the light, living in the light. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Last week we began a study of Paul's section in Ephesians where he instructs us, informs us, we are to walk as children of light because we are light. And we isolated our attention at the very beginning of this study on verse 3 where he writes, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. We noted the NIV translation of that, which is very simple, very simple. There must not even be a hint of this among you. We noticed from this verse three radical commitments For a life of purity, no hint of immorality, no hint of impurity, and no hint of greed, all related to sexual sins. For our time in God's Word this morning, I'd like us to take an excursus from the verse-by-verse look at Ephesians and hear some of what God has to say about sexual purity in His blood-bought, believing sons and daughters. Now, I trust that last week was well inside the 
the boundaries of um, any kind of propriety, and I'm going to try to stay well beyond inside that line as well. But I do want to comment on some wonderful conversations I had with some parents who said it solicited some very um, uh, unexpected conversations with their children. And can I just remind you that when God's Word addresses sexual purity and sexual sin, it doesn't blink. And there's no rating on the verse like, well, this is rated PG, so make sure. No, it just says, this is what God thinks. So these are wonderful opportunities for us to talk to our children about these things, even if they have very simple understandings. Because let me assure you this, it's never too young to start talking about this. You know who believes that more than you and I do? The devil. He's quite happy to introduce sexual sin and sexual themes far before we think our kids are ready, but better that this comes from you with shepherding. Not to talk about everything, but to talk about the most important things and to create those avenues where they know that when these issues come up, they can talk to mom or dad about them. So I think that as God has led us to these places, we shouldn't shy away from it because His Word doesn't shy away from it. But I'm going to do my very best to stay well within uh, propriety so we don't raise any questions that we don't need to answer, if that makes sense. As I was studying for this week's sermon, I looked at the sermon catalogs of some of my favorite preachers. It was no surprise that each of them had one or more. Most of them had several sermons that had something along the title of a biblical strategy to fight sexual sin or a pathway to sexual purity. As I looked at those outlines, as I listened to some of those sermons, as I watched some YouTube sermons, there was no consensus and no outline and no magic silver bullet verse universal to all of them. I think that's because there is so much of God's Word that treats this subject, it would be impossible in one or even a few sermons to compile God's thinking and God's Word on sexual purity and sexual sin. Also gives me a little bit of comfort that it would be impossible to give a comprehensive treatment of this issue in just a few minutes as we're going to attempt to say something this morning. So I want to I say something helpful, but I'm not going to say everything possible. Is that, is that an okay enough concession? And there's many things you can study beyond this, many passages that beg our attention on this issue. Let's start with this simple statement. Sexual intimacy and sexual pleasure are God's ideas. He created that intimacy. He created that union. He intended it for Adam and Eve and all the subsequent wives and husbands to enjoy for pleasure and for propagation. And yet, sin takes us off that course very subtly and sometimes very violently. I can identify with the words of Heath Lambert who said this, quote, Our world is awash with sexual immorality. Whether it is adultery, pornography, fornication, or gay marriage, it seems that our culture is not only experiencing, but also embracing the full buffet of sexual sin. Then he says this, Perhaps the saddest part of this reality is the same problems which plague the culture are also strongly represented in the church. Lambert says, most of my counseling ministry is spent talking to Christians who have been devastated 
by one sexual sin or another. The most desperate people I've ever known are those who have experienced sexual sin, either their own or sins of someone else, end quote. Rarely does a week pass by, and certainly a month doesn't pass by, in my own counseling ministry, that I'm not talking to someone about sexual sin. And the enemy of our soul is so clever to make us so ashamed to talk about this that everyone thinks it's just their problem, that they're the only ones who struggle, that they must be the only people who see these advertisements or have uh, acquaintances with these, these movies or these videos and, or these websites. And, and I think if he can back us into a corner of thinking we're all alone, then we are all alone. The writers of the Hebrews provides us with a unique perspective on a believer's fight with all sin and particularly with sexual sin. You know this well, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin, the sin that so easily trips us, entangles us, wraps us up. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just a little bit of a Greek lesson on definite articles and anarthrous nouns. It'll make sense in a moment. When he says the sin that so easily entangles you, it has in Greek what we call a definite article, the sin. Not a sin, not any sin, the sin, which so easily entangles us. That means there is a sin that easily tackles you. There's a sin that, e that so easily tangles you. Maybe it's a couple of sins, but there is a, what the King James calls a besetting sin, a specialized target that the enemy has on your soul. Listen, for some it's anger. For others it's jealousy or envy. For some it's covetousness or materialism, overeating, laziness, bitterness, but for many, as Lambert says, and my own experience in counseling would reflect, it's uncontrolled sexual lust. What is the besetting sin? What is the sin that so easily entangles you? Well, I love what Joel James, my friend, says. He says, it's that sin, it's that sin that you spend 75% of your efforts on to be holy. We all know that. And trust me, if you don't know that, the devil does. He knows the sin that he can trip you up easily with. And what it is, the Lord recognizes that. Setting aside the sin that so easily trips us, that entangles us. It's that sin you confess the most, that you fight the most, that you seek the Lord's help and forgiveness on the most. It's what you end up confessing at the Lord's table the most. And to depart from and forsake such entangling, besetting sin means to acquire understanding and wisdom from God's word. It can't come from your own intuition. Job 28, 28. And to man, God said, Behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. 
So wisdom, understanding, growth, maturity, all is defined by departing from, laying aside, running from sin, running from evil. I think it's interesting that in Paul, Paul's uh, epistle to the Romans in chapter 6, he talks very graphically and explicitly about these sins. And he doesn't talk about any sin as an addiction. He talks about sins as enslavement, which is even stronger. Because in enslavement, you're choosing to enslave yourself to a Lord. You're submitting to a master. And Paul says you're either enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to Christ. No one is addicted to pornography. You're enslaved to it. Now, just for a moment, turn back to our, our friend passage, Proverbs 5. I won't take the time. I've actually preached on this several times in our church before. But Proverbs 5 is really lays out a, a plan for a cost-benefit analysis in sexual sin. Weigh the cost, understand the benefits of obedience, the cost of sin and the benefits of obedience. Talking to his son, Rehoboam, Solomon says in Proverbs 5, My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. In other words, you need to be learning about this, that you may observe discretion, discernment. Your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Don't make too much out of the gender here. Not only do adulteresses, females, tempt men, but men tempt women as well. Smoother than oil is her speech is the temptation. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. There were two kinds of swords in the ancient Near East. There were swords that were tools. They were one-sided like a machete. They were two-edged. They were only used for battle and for killing. She's a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of shield. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not even know it. It's like the image on a computer screen is not thinking about the possible ending of a disastrous pursuit of, pursuit of mouse clicking on nudity. It's, there's no thinking there at all. Now then listen, my sons, to me, and do not depart from my words. Keep your way far from her from these computer programs, from these websites, from your phone, from whatever the temptation is. Keep your way far from it. Do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one. Strangers will be filled with your strength. Your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. You will groan in your final end. Look at what sexual sin will end up costing you. Weigh that cost and then come back after imagining that to the present and Commit never to go there, never to let that happen. What would it be like? I've often thought when I read this verse, it scares me. What would it be like to have to sit down with my precious Kim and say I've been unfaithful? What would it be like for my sons to look at my computer and see something that I shouldn't have looked at? I never want to have that reality but Solomon says to his son, imagine how bad it will be and come back and don't go there. Your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I've hated instruction, I've spurned reproof, I've listened, how I've not listened to the voice of my teachers and pastors and preachers and care group leaders and, nor inclined my ears to my instructors. I was almost, what grace is in the word almost, almost in utter ruin. 
in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Then he gives a positive about marriage. This is euphemistic. He's not talking about being thirsty out in the desert. He's talking about marriage. Drink water from your own cistern. This is the intimacy God intends for a couple in marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. I think it's interesting. Solomon with 900 wives and concubines tells his son, drink water from your own cistern, singular. You think he learned something? Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Never grow old of the one you married early, if you married early. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. I love this phrase. Be exhilarated always, not with her intimacy, but with her love. It's a relationship with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his path. Can I just tell you, I almost, I didn't really, but I almost thought I could get up here and read you verse Proverbs 5.21 and sit down and we would have enough. Our ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Is that not enough? He sees all, he knows all. Do you believe in God's omniscience and omnipresence? If you do and did... What a difference that would make in what you watch and what you do, what you think. His own iniquities will, iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly. He will go astray. Cost, benefit, analysis. It's all right there. What will sin cost me will be the benefit of obeying. All right there in this father-son talk. There's something there too that dad's, are you talking to your sons about these things? Moms, are you talking to your daughters? Parents, are you talking to your children? Because someone else is. One of the most important parts of walking with Christ and growing in godliness is the practice of self-inventory, performing regular checkups on your thinking, stopping to see how am I thinking that's what we're going to try to do today. I want to outline our time together in asking five questions a believer must answer for a life of purity. Now, remember, looking at all these preachers that I looked at this way, there are dozens of pathways to sexual purity that are all very good. These are not comprehensive, but they will get you started. Five questions a believer must answer for a life of purity. The first is this, how are you caring for the health of your soul? How are you caring for the health of your soul? If you want to fight the battle for sexual purity and you wait to fight that battle until you're in the moment of sexual temptation, you will fail more than you will succeed. Think about that again. If you wait to think about fighting sin until the moment you're fighting sin, you will fail more than you'll succeed. Armies train for battle. Sports teams train for games. Musicians train for concerts. And Christians prepare for battle against the lusts of the flesh before they experience the lusts of the flesh. Psalm 119 is my favorite text to help us here. In the bait section, Aleph bait, it's the, all by the Hebrew alphabet, it's the second section 
Listen to the whole stanza. The writer says, how can a young man, we could say, or an old man, a young woman, or I think it's proper to say an older woman instead of an old woman. How can a young man, an old man, a younger woman, an older woman, how can a person keep his way pure? It's the right question. That's what we're asking. By keeping it according to your word, which means God's word provides us all we need for a life of purity. With all my heart, I have sought you, verse 10. Oh, how we miss that. We just typically think, how can I fight sin without realizing this is all relationally? It's personal. How are we pursuing him? With all my heart, I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And then here it is. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's the path. Your word I've treasured, I've memorized, I've understood, I've exegeted, I've applied in my heart, so that I won't sin against you. See what the preparation is there? Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have told all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard. I'll think about your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word, trust me, every time you and I sin, we are willingly or willfully or negligently forgetting his word. Your word I have treasured in my heart, verse 11, that I might not sin against you. If you haven't treasured God's word in your heart before the moment of temptation, you will have nothing with which to fight the temptation except willpower. I think all of us could give a testament to the fact that that's not a very powerful source. You say, like, what, what are you treasuring in your heart? Who God is, what he's like, what he's said, how he's instructed. The psalmist here understands sin also as personal. It's a personal affront to God himself that I might not sin, not just generically or abstractly, I might not sin against you, my king, as a citizen of your kingdom, as a blood-bought daughter or son of the Savior. The psalmist's plan here is to learn how to fight before temptation so he knows what to do during temptation. Last week, I gave you a little, little pathway I want to adjust a little bit. I said, when the moment of temptation comes, stop, think, pray, resist, repeat. Can I add one? Stop, think, pray, apply. Remember what you've learned. Apply, resist, repeat. In other words, you're drawing up from what you've treasured in your heart so you know why, you not, or why you're not going to sin. And if you sin, you know why you did. This means practically practicing spiritual disciplines of regular Bible intake and reading, regular prayer, it means regular confession of sexual sins in the heart before they become sexual sins enacted. I'm convinced that almost every time we're tempted in any way to view something we shouldn't or to do something we shouldn't, if in that moment, in that very moment, we would stop and apply the reality that God is holy, He wants us to be holy, He sees, He knows, He cares, and He's there to help we would make that decision. 
But we don't do that because we haven't prepared. Is this the read your Bible or sermon? You caught me. We don't read our Bible to satisfy our curiosities or to check the little boxes that we have. We read our Bibles to know who God is, what He's like, what He expects, the power that He gives us to overcome these temptations so that we can be what Ephesians 1.4 says, holy and blameless, which is why He adopted us to be sons and daughters in the first place. John MacArthur has said, when a man falls into sin... He doesn't fall very far. He's been leaning that direction for a long time, end quote. Are you leaning? Are you leaning toward God and His Word and preparation and treasuring His Word, praying about these things, confessing sin, confessing inclination, acknowledging your besetting sin, the sin that so easily entangles you, and talking about that with the Lord? Or are you leaning toward sin? We've talked about this so many times. Are you asking how close can I get to sin or how holy can I be? Are you preparing? Are you caring for the health of your soul? Unhealthy souls fall to sexual sin in mind and in deed. Healthy souls have been fed by the word of God by treasuring up what God has said about himself and these issues and has preparation for when these happen to know not just how to say no, but this is important, why to say no. Knowing how to inventory your heart. Secondly, to what and to whom are you giving your love? To what and to whom are you giving your love? You say, that's kind of odd. Well, at its heart, sexual sin is misplaced love. Sexual purity is rightly directed love. Sexual sin is misplaced love. Sexual purity is rightly directed love. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 34, Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered themselves together. One of them, a theologian, a lawyer, one who is expert in the, the law of Moses, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Of all the 630 plus commandments, which is the most important? They had a stratification and a hierarchy but they didn't expect him to say this. He said, I'll, I'll answer that for you. The most important one, you shall love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. And before they could even talk to themselves about that, he says, this is the foremost and greatest commandments. And the second is like it. They didn't ask him about the second, but he provided that anyway. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Do you understand Jesus' hermeneutic there? All of the 636 commandments and laws in the Old Testament all fall into one of two categories. This is instruction on how to love God better. This is instruction on how to love others better or some combination of the two. That's a powerful hermeneutic. Loving God and loving others. So then every command about sexual purity is ultimately understanding that this is how to love God with my decisions, with my thought, with my actions, and how to love others. 
At its core, sexual sin is refusing to love the person you're sinning against either in mind or in reality. It's a lack of love. In the mind, the person being lusted after is being sinned against by not loving them, not caring for them, not not treasuring their souls, but rather using them for personal gratification and not using the imagination of them for their sanctifying grace that you could even be praying for. And sexual sin in the flesh is sinning against another by using them in a physical way, the same motive for selfish gains. It's worthy of a whole sermon, and I think we may do this in the future. 1 Corinthians 7 informs us that sexual intimacy is a way to express love for your spouse and bring pleasure to your husband or wife, not a way to love yourself. But if both spouses are intentional, both experience the joy and pleasure of this intimacy given by God. And then there's the believer's love for God. It is not possible. Let me say it more strongly. It is impossible to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and lend your heart towards lustful passions toward another in a sinful way. It's impossible. They're incongruent. They're incompatible. Remember Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and without blame, blameless before him. He expects us to live lives marked by holiness, expects, expects us to live lives marked by moral purity. He expects us to live lives that are utterly different than the world around us, which is why Ephesians 5, 8, we'll get there, says, you were formerly darkness, but now you're light. Walk, walk as children of the light. Live like your profession says. If you say you're a child of God, act like it, Paul says. So, What are you loving in the moment of sexual temptation? God and others or yourself and your lust? Are you loving the person you are lusting after? Is that person's holiness and being made in the image of God and precious in his sight, fresh in your own vision? Third question. What's your source of joy? Now, a little insight into preaching. I, I struggled with this question because I had, this is the way that, this is in my notes how it looked when I was studying. What's your source of joy? I also had, what's your source of happiness? I also had, what's your source of enjoyment? I also had, what's your source of satisfaction? I think it's all the same. So what is your source of joy, happiness, enjoyment, satisfaction? Simply, You will only find lasting joy and satisfaction in God and His ways, not our self-intuitive, lustful ways. Oh, it'll bring temporary satisfaction, but as we studied in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like juicy fruit chewing gum. It tastes good for a moment, but after a few minutes, it's awful. It's true of sexual pleasure. I think it's it's interesting, just a quick hint from 1 Corinthians 7-2. Paul says, because of immoralities, those porneia we talked about last week, those sexual sins, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. And the context here is 
for intimacy, and each woman is to have her own husband. In other words, sexual desire is only to be satisfied and fulfilled and found joyful in the marriage bed. Sex is to be enjoyed and shared as God's wedding gift to a man and a woman in the covenant bond of marriage because of immoralities. The same word Paul uses here, let all immorality be put away from you. It's the Greek word porneia. We studied this last week. It's any sexual desire, it's any sexual experience outside of marriage. Pretty simple. Any sexual desire, any sexual experience outside of marriage is immorality, is porneia. It includes fornication, it includes adultery, but Jesus went further than that. It says it also includes the lust of your heart and thinking about sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse in your mind, you're equally culpable before God. Now remember, before we start throwing it all under the bus or in the sewer, God invented sexual intimacy. He invented sexual desire. He invented sexual satisfaction. He wants it to be enjoyed, to have joy with it in marriage. Between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, exclusively, Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And then this last little phrase, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Wow. Sexual sin brings momentary pleasure, but it never brings lasting satisfaction. Why? Sexual sin buries a Christian's heart with guilt. It drowns your passion with guilt. It entangles and trips our efforts to be holy. Sexual sin stains our relationships with inner shame. Porneia, immorality. What does it include? What does it involve? I told you last week, sexual touching and physical contact outside of marriage. It's both fornication and adultery. It can happen before getting married. It can happen after getting married by violating that covenant. And secondly, according to Jesus, porneia includes looking at anything that causes you to lust with sexual fantasy. Looking at anything. That's your phone, that's your tablet, that's your computer, that's a movie, that's anything. That's what we typically call pornography, but the definition of pornography is a little bit surprising. This is the secular definition. Quote, any display or description of nakedness and or sexually suggestive activity. That's pornography. Not a rating, but what the content is. Listen, I think it includes far more than what we strictly label as pornographic. Anything that displays or describes nudity or is sexually suggestive falls under the category of pornea. And no one is addicted to that. You can be enslaved, but not addicted. I love my boys. I love Luke, John, and Mark. What gifts of grace they are to their mother and father. Um, I, I pray every day, usually every night, with thankfulness that God gave me my three boys. They are all deep friends. They're, except for my wife, they're my best friends. One of them is living in my house, uh, Mark. 
Mark's also studying to go into ministry. And Mark and I are always talking about theology. And by God's kindness and by God's goodness, we're always talking about being more holy and how we can fight sin. And I love that my son holds me accountable and asks me hard questions. Just this week, I was telling him what I was preaching on, and he forwarded me something that was so impactful, I thought I would share it with you. It was a little video clip clip from John Piper, and I took the time to transcribe some of it. So helpful. Thanks, Mark, wherever you are for, for doing this. Piper says this, If the stakes are high enough and sure enough, you will have all the self-control you need to conquer any sexual temptation. So stakes are high enough and sure enough. Then he says this, A black hooded ISIS member drags your best friend or your spouse into the room with a knife to his or her throat and says, If you look at that website... I will slit this throat. Piper says, you will have self-control. You won't click. On the other side, if a man walks into the room and says, if you look at that nudity, I will not give you the million dollars I have in the bag I'm holding. It will be cash for you and tax-free. But if you do not look at that nudity, I will give you a satchel with a million dollars. Piper says, you will have total self-control. What's the point? If the motivation is strong enough, self-control engages, doesn't it? That's a great illustration. But our motivation is not to save a life necessarily. There may be some extreme cases where that could be the case, or not to gain a million dollars. Our self-control is the God of the universe who sent his son to die for the sin we're considering is in our presence and bought our purity. We need to understand that none of us are controlled by our lusts. We are controlled by our theology. We are controlled by what we believe. And when we fail, we are having a miscarriage of our theological convictions. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about sexual pleasure? Psalm 84.11, so important. When I was a single man and I really wanted to do what married people get to do, but I couldn't, this was such a treasure, Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if he hasn't given me that experience, it's because he doesn't consider it good. Do I believe that? Does my theology kick in with that? And am I walking uprightly? Do you, will you believe this? Number four, what do you fear most? What are you afraid of? Fear is a most effective motivator. It is an effective motivator. God knows it because he designed it to be. We have now this thing, and it's a real thing called FOMO. I'm not cool. I just have sons who tell me what this means. FOMO is the fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. In the book of Haggai, The people are sent by God to rebuild the temple. They get sidetracked by building their own houses, decorating their own houses. So God gives them the familiar refrain in the book, 
Consider your ways, repent. And then there's an interesting command in Haggai 2.5. As for the promise I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. It's a strange command. Why do not fear? What were they afraid of? Are you ready for this? They, like you and me, were afraid of the consequences of obedience. They thought, if we obey God, we're going to miss out on our own pleasure, our own houses, our own decorating, our own lives. If we obey God, we'll sacrifice our pleasure. And if we obey God, it's going to cause us to be persecuted by the Assyrians or the Egyptians. We do the same thing. What will obedience cost me and what will obedience cause me? Those are good questions to ask, but the right answer is it will cost me if I disobey and cause me a deeper relationship with God if I do obey. Do you fear missing out of pleasure and satisfaction if you resist sexual temptation? Ultimately, that's one of the most basic motives of why people sin in that way. I need to do this or I will miss out on something satisfying. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of missing out if you obey? What bad theological thinking that is. This goes back to point one. Are we filling our mind with right thinking? Jesus said in Luke 12, 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. That's just such an almost laughable statement. Don't be afraid of people who can kill you. What? And after that, they have no more than they can, that they can do. Now we get to the heart. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Paul actually says that down in Ephesians 5, 5. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's frightening. Paul similarly wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord is the avenger of sexual sin in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. What are you afraid of? It's okay. You say, Rick, are you, are you trying to scare us? Yeah, I'm scared. We're supposed to be afraid of God and the consequences of sin. And when we fear God rightly, we come into an intimate relationship and understanding of his goodness and we get closer to him with love and respect. Are you afraid of missing out? Or are you more afraid of the Lord? And then lastly, what's your plan for holiness and purity? What's your plan? Do you have a plan? That's kind of where we started. Do you have a plan? Are you prepared? Are you preparing Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, literally no plan for the flesh in regard to its lust. Are you planning on how you can sin and get away with it? Or are you planning how you can avoid it? Stay away from it. This means a steady walk with Christ and his word daily, having an action plan for when you're tempting, tempted and it confronts you Stop, think, apply, pray, resist, repeat. 
And again, Jesus says, if you've thought it, you're guilty. What are you letting into your eye gates? What are you letting in? Can I tell you something that I've learned that is a horrific reality? There's no delete button in your mind. When you've seen it, you can't delete it. Look, that I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I think the Lord is getting in our kitchen into what we watch. Are you willing to watch what you wouldn't do? Are you willing to watch and be entertained by the things for which your Savior died? And again, don't tell me it doesn't bother you because it does bother God. Jesus affirms the wickedness of sexual sin committed, but he goes to the heart to inform us that sexual sin imagined is also wickedness to God. In fact, in Matthew 5, he says, unrepented, imagined sin will land you into hell. That's how serious it is. Paul told the Corinthians, flee immorality, run from it. Every other sin a man commits outside the body is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You, if you're a believer, you are not your own. You're not yours. You've been bought by God. And before that sounds too heavy, he bought you to redeem you forever in heaven. That seems like a pretty good purchase consequence. Tozer wrote, sin is always an act of wrong judgment. To commit a sin, a man must for a moment believe that things are not as they really are. He must confound values. He must see the moral universe out of focus. He must accept a lie as the truth and see truth as a lie. He must ignore the signs on the highway and drive with his eyes shut. He must act as if he had no soul and he was not accountable for his moral choices. Sin never is never a thing to be proud of. No act is wise that ignores remote consequences, and sin always does. Sin sees only today, at most tomorrow, and never the day after tomorrow, or next month, or next year. Death and judgment are pushed aside as if they did not exist, and the sinner becomes, for the time, a practical atheist who by his act denies not only the existence of God, but the concept of life after death, end quote. Proverbs 3, 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. And again, Job, what a reputation. It's a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Have you learned to ask, not how close can I get to sin, but how holy can I be and stay as far away as possible? Youth pastor in high school. He's a dear guy. Wasn't trained. Loved the Lord. Spent time with us. Discipled us. 
He must have said this a hundred times, probably because he didn't have a lot of other things to say, but I'm glad he had this to say. Sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go. Sin will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And sin will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. He's right. But as we said last week, if you have thought in a sinful way, if you have acted in a sinful way, if you have sinned sexually or materialistically or any other way, what did we sing earlier? Grace that is greater than, what's the word? All, all, all our sin. This is heavy stuff, but I love being able to say, there's something heavier. (laughs) It's the grace and forgiveness of Christ that can cover it all. He can forgive you in the simple confession of your sin. It's amazing. What a grace, what a God. If you leave these words from God's word today and you feel overwhelmed by guilt and not overwhelmed by the forgiveness and grace he offers, you've missed the point. Do you want to be bought with a price? He will allow that. To as many as believe the gospel, he gave the right to become children of God, John 1 says. What a great day. If you have been encumbered by sin, and that's between you and the Lord, to confess and forsake and to receive more grace than you have sin. That's good news. That's great news. If you'd like to talk about that, Kelly and Rachel are going to be up here, and we'd love to discuss that with you in our prayer room, talk to you, pray with you. Don't believe the lie that you cannot be delivered from these kind of sins, because you can. Father, give us fresh and biblical perspective For your great name's sake, for our good and for our repentance, cause us and call us to be holy and blameless because you've adopted us to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.